and Film Globe podcast, and I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a very entertaining and informative program for you this week. We're going to talk to fellow nerdlinger Scott Gold about the Guardians of the Galaxy 3, the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we're going to talk to rock critic James Porter, music critic anyway. He wrote a piece about a new Little Richard documentary that appeared on our sister site, Rock and Roll Globe, and he's going to be on this show to talk to me about that. But first, we're going to talk about the news of the week in the entertainment industry, the news of the month, the news of the summer, really. It's the Writers Guild of America strike, which is ongoing now in New York and L.A. and wherever Writers Guild of America writers live. Rob Kuttner, fellow WGA member, along with me, will be here to talk about the strike and the issues involved and what it's like to walk on the picket lines in 2023. We'll be right back with Rob after this self-produced musical interlude. In 2007, I went on strike. My life was very different then than it is now. I was not the editor-in-chief of a online publication devoted to culture and the arts and film. Uh, and I also, I was the greatest living American writer, but I, I wasn't um, a film critic. I was trying to write films. I was trying to write TV pilots and I had just sold a pilot to CBS based on my book, Alternate Ad, the, the day before the Writers Guild of America went on strike. So I walked the pickets in Los Angeles where I lived at the time. And uh, I'm not walking the pickets now because my WGA membership is currently inactive, but the WGA is on strike again. And what did they say? This time it's personal. And it actually seems a bit more serious than the last time we struck. I, I found some things about that strike to be kind of frivolous in a way. And it actually ended up torpedoing any momentum I had in Hollywood. Although that was, the point of the strike wasn't to destroy whatever career I had going. It was <laughs> to try to... Um, you know, gain concessions for writers who were already uh, more established than I was or who were going to be established in the future. And now those writers have their own strike and it's happening now. And Rob Kuttner, our frequent Book and Film Globe contributor and also uh, currently inactive, but uh, soon to be active, perhaps again, WGA member, uh, wrote about it for us. And he's here today to talk to me about the WGA strike. Hello, Rob. Pencils down. Yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> Fortunately, 2023 slogan, very relevant to our work conditions. Yeah, pencils, pencils. <laughs> I think we do have a few pencils in the house. We usually, we usually, I usually you take them to the grocery store with me to cross things off. Of or, the, or when golfing. You know, or when mini, mini golfing. Mini, uh, mini golfing only, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, but yes. So, yes, my pencils are down, although it doesn't apply to, uh, there's no um, Sea of Reeds media strike ongoing we're a small company not yet no we're a small company and we are uh, fairly compensated and receive good uh, benefits and swag uh, as a result of our work so i uh, there's no strike in the works for sea of Reeds media but the wga is is out there and so you wrote about you were very active in the strike in 2007 i was just a drone kind of walking uh back and forth uh in front of paramount studios or in front of disney or there was some uh i lived on uh, the east side of LA and there was some little minor studio in, in Silver Lake that uh, I could walk to um, or at least ride my bike to and I, I would pick it uh, there from time to time. But you were you were living in New York. You were uh, a writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, I believe, at the time. And you were, really, you right. were like a strike captain. Mm -hmm. So um, you were very involved. And, and also like the issues of that strike really affected you in, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, because the... Um... With the issues last time were like what they called, uh, what we now call streaming, basically in video on demand, was called new media quaintly back in 2007. And it was still a little bit experimental. And um, basically writers were not getting the same kind of compensation that they got when their work was, at that time it was mostly like appearing on companies' websites. So like CBS.com would show the Big Bang Theory like, you know, the day after it premiered on the network. And that was like, the next frontier, you know, before everything was sort of digital, before there was apps and streaming. 
And they were like not compensating writers for that at all. So basically you could see the companies were planning to just move everything into some kind of digital format and cut us out of it. So that strike was about that. And it was very relevant about the Daily Show, you said, because our clips would, would had a, basically had a second life online because people would, you know, pass them around or, you know. On comedy, on comedy Central.com, basically. ComedyCentral.com, right. And it was because of the Daily Show, it was very current. So like, and so to see that stuff go out there and then, uh, and then not get compensated for it was like, you know, struck us pretty badly. But, you know, it affects the whole industry because that's how writers survive between jobs is the residuals they get, the extra payments they get when a, when a show is sold again into a rerun or, or, or licensed abroad. And the company makes more money from that than they're supposed to pay a percentage of the writers and also the actors and directors as well because it's a very unstable business. How so quaint, not, though. How quaint, though, reruns, the idea of reruns. When, I know, right? When every show is available to view at all times on multiple platforms, um, often for free with a few few yeah. ads. So, um, you know, this, I feel like, um, you know, the the landscape is so different now. And totally. the the world, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm barely even trying. I occasionally will, you know, wanely, you know, start working on a pilot with some people or even by myself. But like, I'm not, I'm not really pushing in Hollywood like, like I was back in the day. But man, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm seeing tweets and stuff. And I don't know. I don't know how, um, how realistic this is where people are like, we can't afford, people who are staff writers on shows, on streaming shows are like, we can't afford to buy groceries. And I'm like, really? You can't afford to buy groceries? Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I can't verify any of those stories. I, I know it, it has gotten much, much tougher, like economically. I mean, LA is more expensive than it used to be, which is not anyone's fault exactly. But, um, um, but basically, like, you know, kind of like I said in the article, they've taken sort of a chop shop approach to like, the studios have to like, how can we pay the fewest writers for the smallest parcel of time to work on the show that we're sort of putting together? And, you know, it used to be sort of like, you know, a writing job for a TV show or for a feature really was that you'd have a certain set period of time, like I'm going to be employed during that time. Like this is the, the preparation, this is the writing time, this is the post-production, uh, this is the period that the show is going to be put together and then put on the air. And right. And you would get you would get money um, for your for your time and also extra money for episodes you wrote. And in addition, right. in addition to that, you would accumulate credits that would allow you to enjoy the benefits of being a union member like health insurance, health care and pension. Yeah. And the health care and pension, um, both of which, as far as I can, I still have a little WGA pension sitting around. And, you know, I, I, I remember the health care being uh, basically free. Um, for, yes, it's a very good healthcare program for sure. You know, basically free, and I and and but so the thing is, I, there, and there's a certain um, threshold that writers have to reach right. in, uh, uh, every quarter, every every pay, right. every half, quarter, is it six months, four months. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And you know, so when this, if the studios are pulling back the fees, that makes it harder for writers to achieve these thresholds that you know even if they're not getting paid as much as much that stuff kind of turns being a wga member into a living wage because if you're not paying for health care you know suddenly that's a that's a huge burden off of the financial plate right yeah exactly because it was like you know healthcare is more expensive and it was sort of like an office job in the sense that your health care came with the job basically but as you said you have to be working steadily enough and the studios have sort of disrupted that process because it, it, they don't want to pay people to stick around as, as long. And they want to pay, they have what they call mini rooms, which is a big, which instead of having a staff writer's room, of like, like 10 people, for example, they'll get like three or four and having to work on part of it or something like that. Cause that way they don't have to pay as many people and they can kind of fragment it. It's and you know, in theory on, on paper, some of these things kind of make sense in this sort of like big picture way, but they don't really work at all well with the creative process and certainly well with the, you know, financial stability of the job. Yeah. They're talking about paying a day rate and, you know, and, and people are complaining that being a writer is now turning into like a, a gig job. And yeah, exactly. And I'm sitting here thinking it's always been a gig job for me for the most part. The only non gig jobs I've ever had uh, in 30 years were, were the one I have now at book and film globe. And the yeah. one I had in my twenties when I was a newspaper reporter. <laughs> You know, yeah. those were yeah. salaried jobs with, you know, with, with, you know, a, a certain guaranteed income. Any other time, it's always a gig job. 
So I kind of it's it, it totally it totally is. I think the difference now is just that like because um, it's a gig guy that sometimes takes like huge amounts of hours and like complete focus. Like you have to sort of you know you have to give up other paying work to do it, and then you're sort of just you're sort of out of the running for other jobs. I guess is, is while you're employed. So let's I don't I'm not exactly sure what the economics are. Let's say uh, I, by some miracle of God. I am hired as a staff writer on an eight-episode eight limited Amazon Prime series created by mm-hmm. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, for instance. Mm-hmm. Best-case scenario. Um, what am I getting paid as a staff writer? What, what is, what is, what is the, uh, my take there? I actually don't know the figures, and they've adjusted, and they've, they've uh, done several contracts since the last strike where they've adjusted the figures upwards. So I... I don't have good information about that. I think you can find that probably on the WGA's website, at least what their minimums are. They have a minimum in the contract, and so it has to be at least that, and sometimes it's more. Um, although, again, like one of the complaints is that the studios are, are pushing everyone back to minimum, minimum wage. So there's basically been, they're cutting wages. It's not minimum wage, though. It's not minimum wage. People no, 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 definitely not minimum wage. Definitely more than that. I mean the minimum that yeah. they can pay you yeah. for an episode or for a week. And that could be, mind you, $10,000. That wouldn't be like a, a weekly. That might be like, you know, part of a script fee or something like that, okay. I think. Well, and that's, well you know, well, I, I should say, you know, for a higher level writer, yes, it could be. That's true. Right. For sure. Right. And so that's the other thing, too, is like in addition, I mean, this is, you know, we're getting a bit deep in the weeds here. But since we are the yeah. num- number 49 ranked uh, entertainment <laughs> news podcast in Sweden, we I feel like we should inform people. You know, it's like there are other ways to get into your WGA, too. You don't have to be a staff writer. You could sell a screenplay, let's say, right. or $200,000, which is not an unreasonable sum these days right. for selling a screenplay. And that will not only get you guild membership, it'll cover your guild membership for at least a couple of years because you have to hit a certain threshold and they get assigned right. points and all that. So those aren't really the writers who are, who are, we're not, they're Correct. not, we're not really on strike here for the, for the guy who, um, who wrote, uh, Co, who's co-writing Toy Story Five or whatever? You know those exactly. Are, there's, there's like a someone, someone put a pyramid graphic up where it's like there's like you know it's like America. There's like a little pyramid at the top. There's a couple of names that you probably know. You almost know their name or you know what they've been with, and they're doing fine. Um, although you know, I mean, they don't love this stuff either, but they're going to be fine financially. And then there's like a huge middle, which is like all the rest of us in the sort of a bottom of tier of people. You know who who've been trying to get into the guild and it's like waiting for their for their break or for their show, and this is, you know, it's heartbreaking for them too. It's like these some of these you know kids who are out there who've been going to who've, who've been grinding out at the upright grade, trying to write sketches, trying trying to get trying to get a gig on Adult Swim or whatever. I mean, look, I want, I mean, I, I like the idea of writers being paid for their work, and I think that the you know these issues are important. There's no justifying the greed of the studio heads here. I mean, they're making extraordinary amounts of money uh, at the top, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And I think the guild is only asking for, what's the concession they're asking for? $86 million as a pool. Yeah, they, they go, the guilds for, for, if they get the full ask, it's like about 420 million. Okay. And the studios offered 86 at the okay. last thing. But then when you look at the fig, I mean, these things are stratospheric numbers, but then when you look at like, um, the pay package for all the studio heads last just last year was like seven hundred seventy million. So it's about half of their. Pay. I mean, I know money doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, but, exactly, um, exactly. But, so, but I mean, if you think about it, it's not like. The, but like, there's there's a. Lot, it's interesting because like the financial news is like, oh, you know, HBO Max is in trouble and Disney's in trouble, and it's like, I mean, they are in some ways, but they're not very much in other ways. They certainly have. There, I wish I had those troubles. I wish I had. I know. I know. They have. They have financial decisions of how they allocate, you know, their assets and liabilities and stuff, which on paper put them in debt and stuff, but they also have to pay for, you know, contractors at every level, including us. I mean, yeah. So look, I'm not siding with the fat cats. I just find the like, um What about just, the crumb bums? The, with the crumb for sure. No, I don't I don't yeah. side with them either. But but I will say that, you know, just like with the last strike, there's kind of this absurd you know, play acting going on of like, you know, these are, these are some of the, the most um, privileged union members uh, in, oh, for sure. in the yeah. world. And so you've got people who are living, who live at, own a house in Silver Lake or, at, you know, or wherever, or, you know, 
Bel Air, even like yeah. walking around with picket signs, you know, you know, wearing their, uh, you know, their two hundred dollars sunglasses, and you know, out out there, and and you know, and and tweeting about it, and and trying to pretend like there's some sort of labor hero, uh, which which isn't to say they shouldn't be fairly compensated. I I just find I found I found it absurd. And and then so, then then Seth MacFarlane will stop by and bring donuts for everybody or something. Right. It's like screw those guys. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a there's definitely a huge huge privilege here to to the whole thing for sure. Um, and I th I think that I mean to be fair I think that most writers are aware of it except the ones who are posing for Instagram and stuff like you said. Well, there but, are enough of those that it's annoying. But I do think that you know yeah the, I, I I I I again you know. My pencils are down. I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm 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 an inactive member, so I guess I'm technically on strike. But you know, I I think the whole thing is, it's it's a carnival. It's it's a carnival, and uh, you know, it it kind of um, you know, it um diminish. I don't see I don't see a lot of the same writers. You know go into bat for um industrial workers who are on strike or fast food workers. Totally, yeah, it's yeah, totally a fair point. All right. All right. So one more thing before we, we split. I want there's another uh, interesting sideline to this, which is the um, the AI factor um, in in this yeah. in this strike. Right. That is an that is a very interesting issue that the studios are threatening to essentially replace writers with artificial intelligence. Now, one would argue that some writers are artificially intelligent <laughs> already to begin with, um, and you know. Something like you know, nine one one Lone Star could easily already be written by some kind of weird artificial intelligence bot. But there, but there's a there's a this is a hot point of contention. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a little scary for everybody. Um, I think there is certainly a swath of let's say like genre type material, like you're saying, that at least could be done in part by AIs. I think you'll still need humans to work with them. But yeah, I think there's um, from the sort of game theory strategy part of this, I think there's, it's probably a chunk of the studios that think that if they can wait out long enough, they can replace, they like a few months, the AI is advancing so fast, they can replace some writers in some things. But I mean, I don't think they can do it wholesale, but maybe they think eventually they can. Um, and so they put that, you know, so it's the issue is kind of broken really in the past year, I think, even though we've been assembling our pattern of demands for longer than that, and so it was put into the into the demands pretty recently, saying, and so the writers proposed a couple of, de of demands to regulate it. Like, you know, if you use AI, you have to hire a writer. You can't you can't use uh, guild protected material, which means basically almost any kind of famous movie or TV show. You can't use that to train an AI. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. how you enforce that, but I mean, it's already getting into like the weeds of that stuff about how that's going to work. Yeah, and the the AMPTP the studios like basically didn't respond to that and said like, Oh, we can have an annual meeting to discuss advances in the field. So yeah. that was taken as a big, a big F you, I think to the writers who are, I mean, I mean, I don't think people necessarily think it's going to take our jobs tomorrow, but like, you know, maybe in the next five years, it'll, it could take a lot of people's jobs when sure. it's already a tough field. I mean, look, look at how the field has changed so much and the 15 years since, since we last struck. So it, right. The new media stuff and the, right. The rerun reruns. Yeah, reruns. It's it, it's definitely possible. Um, how long do you think that this is going? The last strike. It felt like it went on forever. I, I was so bored. It sure did. Oh boy, did it. Yeah, like months, right? It was hundred. It was a hundred days. It was like just over just over three months. Yeah, and then I remember I went to this big meeting in, in L.A. and they said the strike is over, and everyone was like, "Yay, we get to go back to work." And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Right. My my, my deal is dead. And, you know, yeah. and I, and to, to, uh, you know, not, not, I lasted in LA another three years before, uh, before it all kind of, kind of. I mean, like for what it's worth, you were, you were in very good company with a lot of people. Oh, I know. Like, oh, I know. I know that my story is not uniquely tragic. It's neither unique nor tragic. It's right. just, it's just, it's no, just, it just indicative. Sucks. It's just indicative. It so really there are people whose careers will be ruined by this strike because they will have development deals that go into the shitter. It's just the way it's going to happen. They come, they sometimes they use as an excuse to declare what they call in contract terms force majeure, where they be, you know, a sort of not exactly an active God, but sort of an external force that can't be controlled. Meaning that they can, they can sort of, they can sort of clear out a lot of projects that 
they did they didn't want to keep going with or they weren't working out right like that's the thing is you know there's a lot a lot of tv shows and and movie scripts get sold that never get made and so it's just it's just a chance to sort of uh do a spring cleaning content spring cleaning as we're we're, recondo the whole industry yeah yeah so uh you know i'm i i don't i'm concerned that this is going to go on i think this has but this strike has the potential to go on for at least a hundred days, if not a hundred and three. Uh, could I mean the one in the one in eighty eight was about I think about five months or something like that. Yeah, which also a completely different time. It's hard to say because it's like on the one hand, like they have I think I said in the article like they have all the money and stuff, and the writers are grinding through this. On the other hand, like the writers are like way more on the same page that they were even in those seven, which they were more evenly split. Like like the vote for all this was like super unified, and versus the companies are not. The same consortium of studios that used to be they're all different kind of businesses now so yeah it's a lot I, of new amazing. media it's like amazon netflix um you know et cetera, et cetera. so you know they they may be more receptive or they may be even less receptive but it's like they may not they may not be on this be able to hold together in terms of like you know front because they have different business competitive business interests with each other so that's yeah. that's sort of the hope i'm holding on to it is very atomized you know the the old school studios and netflix are not necessarily friends here right 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 all right well the wga strike is ongoing rob you are um are you out you're not out on the you live in la now you're not out on the pickets right just came from one. Oh yeah how was that yeah I'm still fresh from at, at CBS Television City. Oh, yeah? was, uh, and it, it rained a little bit, so that, there was quite a kerfuffle. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's LA. I generally, yeah, the weather's been so weird in LA. Generally, you have to like you slather yourself in, in uh, sunscreen and wear, wear a big, broad, floppy hat like an old lady doing her gardening or something. I would do that anyway. So, <laughs> well, it, it's your signature look, Rob. All right. That's well, well, I'm not. Um, I, you know, I live in Austin. Uh, I believe uh, picketing is actually illegal. Uh, uh, under Texas law, and um, I even uh, I'm so inactive that I'm I'm not going to pick it. But we'll continue to cover the strike on Book and Film Globe because it is definitely the most important issue in entertainment news in the moment. So solidarity to you, my brother. Thank you so much. You know where to find me. <laughs> Where's that? At at uh, at Cantor's at Cantor's Deli. I mean, I'm happy to report in later on if you want to. All right. Follow up. All right. We'll bring some bagels. <laughs> All right. Take care. It's just like a shot out of a cannon. His voice? The... My God, who is that? He created the rock and roll icon. Sorry, y'all. It wasn't Elvis. I am the king of rock and roll! The first songs that you love that your parents hate is the beginning of the soundtrack of your life. Little Richard's lyrics were too lewd to get airplay on the radio. They was not that dirty. They were just as clean as you were. The South is the home of all things queer. They called him a sissy, a punk. I was not supposed to be the hero for their kids. Little Richard has an incredible string of hits. And so what they did was they said, we're going to put the white bucks on it. Book and Film Globe has a sister publication, or a sibling publication anyway, called Rock and Roll Globe, also published by Sea of Reeds Media. And Rock and Roll Globe ran a story a couple of weeks ago, a review of a new documentary about Little Richard called Little Richard, I Am Everything. And I have the author of that review and a well-regarded Chicago rock critic who I knew back in the day when I was a cub reporter in Chicago, James Porter, and he is here with me now to talk about the new Little Richard documentary. Hello, James. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Right on. So, um, all right, so Little Richard, I Am Everything, you know, it's sort of the definitive Little Richard movie. Um, It it covers uh, every aspect of his life and career comprehensively, and, you know, I I was, um, I didn't know some of these things about Little Richard. I didn't know about his continual back-and-forth conversion from being, like, flamboyant glam rock star to being like a you know straight laced southern preacher it was very interesting yeah he did that so often that people were frankly kind of uh frankly kind of cynical about it because i remember in the 80s a lot of people were like oh yeah he he discovered god this week but next week he's gonna be back doing rock and roll again you know right he's like i'm gay i'm queer no gay people and queer people are sinners you know and then yeah. it's like then it's like okay i'm gay and i'm queer and i'm christian and everyone god loves everyone and we kind of went kind of went around in circles 
you know, what I, what I thought was interesting about his musical career was, you know, the movie makes a very good case, I think, for, you know, how he influenced uh, a sort of shape-shifting rock and pop stars uh, who, who continue kind of on the, uh, in that way today. But I found it interesting that his, you know, his music, like he had a burst, a supernova burst of creativity in the 50s, all his hits. And then, you know, and it was a great stage performer, but didn't really produce any great music after that. I mean, would you say that's the case? Uh, no, I don't, because as a Little Richard fan, yeah. I mean, I'll admit that the classic Little Richard sides were in the 50s on specialty records. But I think that, you know, he did some pretty good stuff before when he was, cause I don't know, I don't remember right offhand if they played the early songs in the, in the movie. He was, he was singing a totally different voice. He was singing like, you know, general, like fairly generic straight jump blues. You know, and had he continued in that vein, he never would have become famous. But I think those sides are good for what he is, for what they are, you know. And then after that, you know, when, you know, like after he uh, got out of the church, because as the money, as the movie says, he, I mean, he loved the Lord, but he needed to make some money. So he went secular again and started saying his hits. By that time, the scene had changed and he was trying to catch up with the new rock and soul developments. And while that stuff is not all to me, is not always 100% essential. There are some classic moments that are like here and there. So I can't really dismiss anything, you know, post 50s, just just like that, you know. All right. So as a little Richard, as a little Richard fan, do you feel like the movie did him and his legacy justice? I did, you know, and also like the fact that they contextualized it too, because a lot of my friends, my rock historian friends, they didn't like the fact that it was kind of bogged down in a lot of sociology, probably from people who they surmise probably didn't listen to Little Richard in their spare time. However, though, it's like you get a Little Richard now and it's like it's not that big of a deal because there's other people who are just as flamboyant, you know, whereas in the 50s, I mean, you got to contextualize. It's like, you know, when uh, Tutti Frutti first came out, you know, rock and roll was starting to make waves, you know, and, and everybody was that like, concerned about the race mixing. But then Emmett Till, uh the kid from yeah. Chicago who got killed down south, and that kind of put everything in a total, in a totally um, interesting perspective. And in the middle of all this, like I say in the article, you know that a black, flamboyantly gay, you know, rock and roller, you know, who's like hollering and screaming in ways that most white singers were not back in 1955. You know, the fact that he could like come out with you know music that you know attracts a, a sizable white audience, a black audience. And he could get away with doing what he did. That was amazing. Michael was inspired by me. Prince James Brown, I discovered him. Jimmy Hendrix was my guitar player. I used to stand on the desk and do Little Richard. I love you, Paul. Hello, Linda. Everyone was beholden to him. He spit on every rule there was in music. I was unpredictable. They didn't know what I was going to do. Now you got it, God damn it. Show it to the world. Yeah, uh, I mean, agreed, of course. And I think the movie does a great job uh, spelling out his, um, you know, the sort of prejudices of the time, both against the black people and gay and queer people. You know, the one the one thing I would say is like the stuff I like, this is not like a um, unlike, like, let's say Todd Haynes's um, Velvet Underground documentary, or at least the first half of that, which is you know, one of the I think the best music documentary I've seen in a long time. You know, this is not like a work of art as a movie. It's like kind of a standard clip fest with talking heads and not the talking heads, but but talking you know, people, you know, talking to the camera. And then and occasionally, also a lot of modern modern day artists simulating moments that weren't filmed. Was a lot yeah, of that, that was too. good actually. That stuff was good with the modern day artists. That, that was, it was there was some interesting stuff there. Um, and and I really liked the interviews with like the other sort of kind of sexually uh, gender ambiguous performers from that day. I thought those were very interesting and revelatory. Right. And like when they would talk to like his old bandmates or his cousins or whatever, uh, you know, that stuff was really interesting to me. I didn't, I will agree with your compatriots that I didn't love. I thought there was a little bit too much of the smart academics being smart and yeah. academic, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, but it's, well, as for me, I was kind of at the edge of my seat, you know, hoping that none, that none of them say anything incorrect. And I yeah. think the thing is, you expect them to, but I mean, like I said, they, uh, 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 they said all the right things. 
You know, they didn't try to, they, they took Little Richard on his own terms. They didn't try to make it look like, you know, and this is a lot, problem a lot of academic, a lot of academic types will, will, will do. You know, they, they try not to make it look like, oh, Little Richard was okay, but he was tame compared to Prince. They don't, there's no backhanded remarks like that. It's like, no, they, it was they focused. Were, exactly. It was Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It was focused. I, just, I just found them a little boring, I guess, compared to the rest yeah. of the stuff in the movie, which was, you know, weird and fun and electric, you know, and I thought it was, a, you know, they, they didn't play on the, the famous Talking Heads too much. They had an interview with Mick Jagger. They barely used him. They used John Waters a couple of times. You know, the, the more famous Talking Heads didn't get nearly as much play as the uh, people who were like reiterating their, um, I don't know, their, their course syllabus. What what I what I thought was odd was that there was a guy named Charles Connors who played in Lil Richard's band, you know, and he had some really interesting insights about Lil Richard. What I didn't get is that you know they needed subtitles for him. Now at the showing of the movie that I saw, I asked the director because the director was there. I asked her why did you need subtitles because I could understand every word he was saying. He was quite you know articulate, and she said that when they test ran the movie. They said that Charles kind of came out garbled, so he kind of had to put his words on the screen. You know, I mean, that wasn't too distracting. I just kind of wanted to know why. But it was really interesting hearing the viewpoints from Charles Connors and uh, the two uh, New Orleans musicians, two, the two New Orleans session musicians who have since died. You know, hearing, hearing those guys tell the story along with Lil Richard's family, I mean, that really made the – the fact that they weren't little kids seeing Lil Richard on television. You know, they knew him flesh and blood walking yeah. down the street. You know, so that kind of gave their story a little bit more immediacy. Yeah, the guy was like, "We had or we had orgies, sure. We had there were orgies every night." Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm just like, "Oh, so this was rock and roll," and the band boys benefited from it. You know? Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and I, I liked how um, sort of unprejudiced they were about uh, Little Richard's sexuality. I mean, I mean, I guess if you're if you're touring, you're in a situation where you're touring with Little Richard in the '50s or even early '60s. Um, you know, I mean, you're obviously uh, already sort of. Uh, that puts you in a, at a level where you can accept a uh, difference, <laughs> I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. These people remained friends after, uh, after little Richard threw his Julie in the water and stopped doing rock and roll. I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I got that impression just talking to these, just hearing these people talk rather, you know? Yeah. Everyone seemed to really genuinely love and respect him. I also, before we go, I wanted to talk about, there's the, the fascinating segment to me about little Richard in England. Uh, after he, you know, he had his, um, his big explosion in the U.S. in the 50s and then kind of went on one of his, you know, I feel guilty about being who I am hiatuses. And then, exactly. right, and then comes back in 1962 because he needs money. It's a yeah. repeating theme and starts touring around England with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Takes the Be he, he took the Beatles to Hamburg. I, I had no idea. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, he 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 told people about that every chance he got. I mean, it's on YouTube. You know, um, it's, it was excerpted briefly uh, in the movie, but you can see the whole thing on YouTube. When Lil Richard was making his comeback, one of many, like in 1964, he appeared on Dick Clark's American Bandstand show, right? And by that time, he wasn't 100 percent back because, um, well, to be blunt, his skin was still dark. He wasn't uh, he wasn't going back to the pancake makeup and he was like a businessman. He wouldn't like the flamboyant little rich that we come to know, you know, wearing a plain old, you know, drab suit, you know, as best you can tell in black and white, you know. And when Dick Clark interviews him, you know, little Richard is not going to his whole campy. Shut up, shut up, shut up deal. He's not trying to say anything like not trying to be a smart ass or anything. He's just telling the story. But, you know, he this is when the, this is when the Beatles like really hot. You know, and he had like this photo, ready to, this framed photo, ready to go of him with the Beatles back when they were still relatively unknown. As early as 1964, he was kind of like, you know, hyping the connection. You know? Well, you know, as well he should have. I mean, they, they played, the Beatles, you, you know, the Beatles played his songs, you know, they, they hung out with him. You know, the Rolling Stones played, you know, as Mick Jagger says in the movie, they played 30 gigs with him in England. That wasn't just a one-time thing where they opened for him once. They toured with him extensively. Look, and Mick was watching every move. And of course, sure. Paul, McCartney, Paul McCartney from the Beatles was like trying to ape his style. Yeah. Ape his vocal style. Ooh, you know, I mean, incorporate yeah. that into his style. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's no question that, you know, you know, Prince, you know, owes a lot to little Richard and David Bowie. And, you know, they showed a whole, you know, whole gaggle of people, Leanne Lady Gaga, Sam Smith, Elton John. I mean, 
none of it probably would have been possible without Little Richard, I'm, as I'm sure uh, Little Richard would have told you himself. Yes. Yeah. And the movie, uh, you know, I think it's it, it's an excellent movie. I would say see it in, I saw it in a theater here in Austin at the Austin Film Society. And as I, as we were saying before we recorded, I just it's nice to see a movie like this in the theater because the sound is so good. I mean, yeah, you can have a sound bar at home and you can get some kind of replication of it, but there's nothing like being surrounded by music in a theater. And not only that, but Little Richard thrived on the audience, even when he was going through his religious phase. I mean, he, there was a give and take between him and the people he was talking to. And you kind of get that even on celluloid coming from a man who is now deceased. You know, so they show these clips of him on these talk shows doing his whole routine where he keeps repeating, shut up, shut up, shut up. You know, and it's really funny hearing the 2023 audience react just as heartily as the 1972 audience who saw him on the talk show. You know, yeah. strangely, yeah. not 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 boring, not dated. And let us yeah. never forget that Tutti Fruity is a song about butt sex. Thank you. And not only that, but here's another uh, interesting thing I thought about it, too. Uh, there was like one clip where they played a song by uh, sort, of, sort of as like, you know, you know, people who preceded Lil Richard as far as doing this, that and the other. They played a song called Shave Him Dry by mm. Lillian Bogan, which you cannot play on the radio a- even today. Yeah, that made a, it made a WAP uh, sound tame. <laughs> uh, tell, tell me about it. Like, the audience was le- when she came out there singing those those intro lyrics. Look it up on for those of you out there listening. If you haven't heard it, look it up on YouTube. To hear Lillian Bogan singing those intro lyrics made the audience, you know, laugh from one end of the of the theater to another. What started as like a polite, polite, nervous titter, yeah. wound snowball into being like you know out and out belly laughs. I mean, yeah. 19, that was a highlight. That's nineteen thirty three. That's sort of pre Hayes Code Hollywood. So maybe maybe uh, that was a the uh, sort of first dirty era of American pop culture. Well, that that song didn't come out at the time. And you can understand why. Uh, yeah, it, it I, I came did. out later on the issues, but yeah. Anyway, so WAP has its has, has a genesis. Any any sort of flamboyant uh, pop star has you can see their genesis in the Little Richard movie. Little Richard, I am everything. See it in the theater now if you can. I think it's also on HBO Max, uh, or certainly an HBO Max production. So that if if you can't if you're living in a place where it's not playing in a theater, which is highly likely, it's available there as well. James. What a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Let's let's get you in the uh, pages of Book and Film Globe uh, sometime soon. You got it, man. <laughs> Been Thank nice. Bye. I'm Star-Lord. I formed the Guardians. Met a girl. Fell in love. That girl died. But then she came back. Came back a total dick. Oh, please. He left out some important information, but that is the gist of it. It's been almost five days, it seems, since there was a new Marvel Cinematic Universe product in theaters, and that has once again been rectified with the release this week of Guardians of the Galaxy 3, the conclusion of the surprisingly successful Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy from director and screenwriter James Gunn. This will be James Gunn's final Marvel Cinematic Universe movie as he is now in charge of the DC Cinematic Universe. And if Guardians of the Galaxy, well, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, for that matter, or any indication, DC is in uh, for a massive improvement because Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is a pretty entertaining film. And I've got Scott Gold here to talk to me about it. Hello, Scott. Hey Neil, great to be back on the podcast. Yes, always good to have you. I don't think we've I've had you on to talk about the MCU before. That tends to be um, my bailiwick. I, I I'm a complete MCU completist. There's no minute of the Marvel filmography or TV slash filmography that I haven't seen, unless you count the Venom movies. But that, that's kind of a side hustle. Uh, so Guardians of the Galaxy three. Uh, like the title indicates, is the third movie in the trilogy. The Guardians of the Galaxy were kind of a, to say the least, a C-tier Marvel property. They're like these intergalactic superheroes slash bandits who cruise around in a junky spaceship, sometimes a slightly less junky spaceship, and have like really bizarre, surreal adventures. Um, and, and this movie is no less bizarre or surreal uh, than the other two, and they're they're based on uh, you know Jack Kirby illustrations, and Jack Kirby was a very fantastical comic book illustrator. So you know, I thought Guardians of the Galaxy three was 
pretty consistent with the other movies. I mean, I, I'm sure you agree with me. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was uh, maybe a little too consistent with the other movies, but uh, that's not a bad thing because the other movies were a lot of fun. They were visually very strange and different and appealing. Um, and, you know, the characters are very fun and funny and the dialogue is quippy and witty. And, you know, for a two and a half hour science fiction movie, it was fairly breezy. Uh, but fairly, it also had fairly. the emotional heft. So, uh, you know, it was a little bloated, but that's what you're going to get when you're trying to wrap up, you know, a trilogy in uh, in one movie. But overall, uh, you know, I had a couple of qualms, but overall I was, I was pretty satisfied with it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I would say that it was, I would say that I felt like some of the quips felt like they were repeating themselves. And some of the action beats I felt like were repeating themselves. And they certainly said, we have to go save our friend way too many times. Like, oh like, yeah, and I definitely think that was uh, a flaw in the movie. There was definitely some repetition, uh, you know, the a lot more, you know, slow motion walking over whatever you know classic rock song or pop pop song they decided to choose. I think it was they kind of uh, they went in a little too hard in some of the memes that uh, in previous movies or tropes or themes that they've used to great effect. I think they relied on them a little too heavily instead of maybe you know using them more effective but sparingly. Um, but, uh, it's, I think it's a small quibble. I didn't think it detracted from the movie too much. It was like, a, it was like a, like a couple of extra de decorations on a cake, you know, or like too many, one or one too many bangles on the outfit. Um, you know, but I, what the meat of this movie is, is actually, I thought quite interesting. This is basically this, the movie is, uh, a flashback origin story for one of the guardians of the galaxy, who is a, uh, anthropomorphic raccoon named Rocket. Uh, who was uh, the movie uh, essentially is about his creation in this, he was created in this kind of gruesome Dr. Moreau style space laboratory. And I feel like, and they don't stint on the details of showing this innocent baby raccoon being tortured and implanted with all kinds of stuff. And I felt like the movie is kind of an extended riff on the dangers of experimenting on animals. I know that sounds crazy, but it's like I, I can't imagine that PETA would um, wouldn't endorse this movie because it really makes you think. Well, I'm sure they were very. James Gunn was very clear to say no anthropomorphic raccoons were harmed in the making of Guardians Gate Three. But uh, sure, said, but he wasn't anthropomorphic when they started on him. That's right, um, and I'm sure even the baby raccoons they were they used were all CGI anyway. But uh, but yeah, I mean nothing will tug at your heartstrings and emotionally manipulate you more than you know doing really, really terrible things to baby animals. Like, how evil do you have to be to do, like, evil, like, scientific experiments on baby animals? It's just, it's, uh, you know, it's monstrous. And it works, you know, to a yeah. large degree. And it, 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 it really solidifies, you know, the pathos of Rocket's character. Yeah. Like, you know, in the first movie, it's like, okay, like, he's a gruff-talking raccoon who, can, who shoots guns and flies spaceships. Like, that's cool. But uh, we didn't really realize... You know how just Trump, you know, traumatic, and uh, and 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 really just uh, emotional. His entire backstory was, and they dig, dug into that so hard in this movie. It was, it's really Rocket's movie for sure. And I think if anything, you know, the problem with it is that most of the movie, you know, aside from the flashbacks, Rocket's not in it because it's a it's a it's a rescue movie. We're no, we're going to save our friend. And the friend is comatose and struggling to survive. So I think the the emotional payoff when he comes back wasn't didn't hit as hard as I would have liked it to. But uh, but that said, like I mean, I was brought in when you know you, you're watching you know this you know these animals that have you know weird cybernetic parts. You know you have a, a walrus with wheels and you know a bunny with a metal mask and spider legs. It's it's kind of terrifying, but the characters are, are endearing at the same time. Very. Uh, Island of Misfit Toys, or, yeah. you know, like, like the, like, it reminded me also of, uh, you remember Sid from, from the original Toy Story, who was like uh, doing terrible things to his toys? Yes. It, uh, it very much reminded me of well, that. Well, um, well James, know, James Gunn's background is with the trauma films, which are sort of these, uh, you know, exploitative splatter creature features, uh, very low budget. And there's a lot of that in this movie. There's these kind of weird cybernetic animals, and there's also lots of goo and blob monsters and like just you know bizarre i mean some of it's cgi and some of it is just kind of like dumb practical effects but 
there's a lot of that sort of gore, not gore. It's not a gory movie, but there's Almost a lot of body horror, you know, like a lot of body horror, like, 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 uh, Cronenbergish, Cronenberg you know, I definitely got, you know, they go to this space station. It's like, or everything on it is organic. And it was very Cronenberg, Rick and Morty, weird creatures, you know, on a flat, you know, everything's made out of flesh. And there's and like, a, you know, they, a they flesh like, station. <laughs> <laughs> on a flesh station, they go to they go to enter. They cut open a hole so they can enter the the space station, and it's like it's like got hair on. It's like it was gross. And yeah. like when they you know the, the guards like open a door in the space station, they like put their hands into like goo. It was just it was uh, it was it made me a little bit squeamish. It was definitely like it, I definitely got David Cronenberg vibes from it. But at the same time. It was original. It was consistent with the Guardians universe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just your typical rote, you know, here's a stainless steel spaceship that we've seen a million times before. So it was original. I will definitely give it that. And we also, and in that same moment, you know, there were, you know, James Gunn uses, used this opportunity to like cast all of his family and friends and stuff, uh, including a wonderful cameo by Captain Mal himself, Nathan, Nathan Fillion, which I was not expecting and really happy to see. Yeah, he, it was fun. Um, that's the thing is like there, there are these very, there's a lot of visual appeal to the, to a movie that, you know, Marvel's gotten a lot of well-deserved crap lately for the for poor quality of its CGI. And there's some of that in this movie as well, but there's also just a lot of like kind of bizarre, practical, low budget, practical effects. And I think it, it, it improved things. You know, and then aside from the Rocket Raccoon story, which I thought was like extremely well um, fleshed out, there's, you know, every one of the major characters gets, you know, it's the traditional three story beats, even if the, the subplot's a little thin. And then the, he introduces a bunch of new characters as well um, to the to, so to the point where he actually like has a rebooted different Guardians of the Galaxy lineup at the end of the movie, uh, with, which doesn't really spoil anything. Um, so, you know. It was. It's pretty effective in being like it's as personal a vision um, in as you can possibly achieve in the most corporate movie product of our time or any time, really. I agree, and you know we got uh, that's that's a good time to mention that we got Will Poulter, uh, who's awesome, playing Adam Morlock, who is uh, you know a long established character in the Marvel comics, and they're fr finally bringing him into the MCU, and I think he was. A brilliant casting choice, and sadly, a little underused. Yes, uh, I thought he was I great. Totally... I thought he was great. He was very, he was kind of dashing and funny, uh, and looked the part really well. And it was fun, but I felt like he kind of, he kind of became an afterthought in the second half of the movie when it looked like he was going to be like the centerpiece of the movie at the beginning. Right. I thought, I thought he'd have a little bit more to do, and I was a little disappointed that he didn't because, uh, you know, he did a great job. It was, a, again, great casting choice. And Adam Warlock, you know, in the comics and even in the, the more recent Guardians of the Galaxy video game, which if uh, any of our listeners out there are Guardians fans and haven't played it, it's hilarious and wonderful, and I highly recommend it. Uh, and he plays a, a big role in that. And so he's, he's a really good character to dig into. And, you know, I want to see more of that, but at the same time, it was teased at the end of the movie that he's going to be part of the new Guardians, which will probably get in phase 13 or whatever, whatever we're on to right now. Right. Yeah. So, look, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, is, I don't think it's going to win any converts over, but I don't think, like a lot, some recent Marvel movies, it's going, to it's going to lose the MCU fans. I think that people are going to, uh, if they already like these movies, they're going to come out of this uh, satisfied. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was a satisfying conclusion to the Guardians trilogy. Uh, one thing, you know, before we, you know, sum up here, I thought was really cool is that there was this one scene, it was a big fight in a hallway. And of course, hallway fights are a big deal. Uh, you know, it's a it's a tried and true trope in, in cinema these days. But it was a really great uh, hallway fight with the Guardians and a bunch of monsters done in seemingly one shot with no edits. Uh, with the camera zooming around, I thought it was super cool and really, really effective and a lot of fun. Reminded it, me of that similar scene in uh, the first Kingsman movie. It was uh, it was dizzying to say the least. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that movie. I couldn't quite make heads or tails of that scene, but uh, you know, there wasn't there wasn't actually a ton of that sort of close quarters fighting. So uh, so that it, it was kind of fun to see. And there's also like a lot of really cool creature design 
in this movie. Oh yeah, Tons including, including War Pig, who's like an eight foot tall like warthog with like battle armor, um, and, and apparently is voiced by Judy Greer. That was funny. You know, I definitely got uh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, bebop rock steady vibes by uh, by those battle battle pig battle creatures. Well, one of the things I've been saying all along in recent months in um, on the show is that. I feel like we're we're in a sort of a return to the 1980s in terms of just the just the over the top cheesy genre movies that we're seeing, and I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy is of a piece with that uh, that movement, uh, while also being a you know a, a, another another notch in the Marvel pop culture domination belt. Yeah, I can dig that, and uh, I'm here for it, man, because I was around the first time that happened, and I enjoyed it as a kid, and I'm digging it now. Yeah, exactly. Well, we don't really have a choice but to be kids if we go to the movies these days because that's that's what they're offering up. So, uh, but I, so uh, from one grown-up uh, man-child to another, uh, I you know let's let's talk again soon. And yeah, and just to let people know, Scott's going to be guest hosting this show while I'm on holiday uh, later this month. So uh, you can look forward to more of his penetrating insights into popular culture. I I hope not to disappoint. And even if you do, it'll be okay. Um, I'll, I'll still, I'll still have you on the team, Scott. I'm gonna let all of you down, and you're gonna love it. You were experimented on as a, as a child. All right, Scott. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. All right. Thanks, Scott Gold, future host of this podcast, or at least guest host. He's not going to take my job from me. No one can take this job from me. Thanks for talking to me about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 now in theaters. Also, special thanks to James Porter for appearing to talk about his Rock and Roll Globe review of a new documentary about Little Richard. Very interesting stuff. And also thanks to Rob Kuttner for fighting the good fight on the picket lines of the Writers Guild of America strike and uh, for appearing on this podcast to talk to me about it and for writing about the Writers Guild of America Strike on the site. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We are not on strike. We are publishing nearly every day and we are recording this podcast pretty much every week. Thank you so much for reading the site. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you soon.